Well, good evening. We're back in systematic theology again. We are in session 50 tonight and um, continuing to look at redemption. Once again, it's God's project, God's work. He chose a people for himself. He's accomplishing their redemption from sin. He's applying that redemption to the elect even today. And as a framework, once again, we've been going through the logical order of the application of the benefits of redemption. And that logical order is called the Ordo Salutis, which is just Latin for the order of salvation. Once again, that order is in your notes. And as we've been studying God's application of redemption to his elect and using the Ordo Salutis, we need to see that the relationship of each of these steps to each other is a logical order. Certain benefits of salvation have to be applied before other benefits. We've seen how regeneration, or the new birth, has to come before repentance and faith. And that's because we need to be changed by divine power in the new birth before we can repent and believe. Some of these steps, they do happen in the same moment of time, but there's still a logical order to the steps. We've already looked at several of these steps in the Ordo Salutis. We looked at election, the effectual call, regeneration, repentance unto life, and faith in Jesus Christ, and the next step that we're up to is this important step of justification. And that step is so important that once again, like I mentioned last time, it's been called the main hinge on which religion turns and the article by which the church stands or falls. But before we get to the subject of justification, we've taken a little detour. We're studying the law of God as revealed in the Mosaic Covenant. And our detour is because justification has everything to do with our relationship to the perfect moral law of God. We have not kept God's moral law. And that moral law is an expression of God's perfect moral character. And the only remedy available for this, for the law condemning us, is free justification by the work of Christ. Now we began looking at the Mosaic law by seeing that there were three divisions of the law. There is the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law has to do with things like the Levitical priesthood, the service of the tabernacle, the service of the temple, the laws of clean versus unclean, holy days, food laws, things like that. These aspects of the ceremonial law, they were types and shadows of Christ meant to point forward to the person and work of Christ. Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. We're no longer under that part of the law. That division of the law has been abrogated by God. And that word abrogated means abolished by the order of an authority. God, in his divine authority, has abrogated the ceremonial law. And then another division of the law was the judicial or civil division of the law, the civil division of the law, the judicial division. We saw that the civil law was enforced for the government of ancient Israel. And that division of the law expired when ancient Israel ceased. Governments of the earth, they're still responsible under God to enforce what the reformers called the general equity of this part of the law. In other words, governments still have the responsibility to enforce justice. But the moral law is still in force for both believers and unbelievers. The moral law is perpetual because it is the expression of God's moral character. The entire moral law 
hangs from the two great commandments. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember the word picture that I used before of the Golden Gate Bridge, how the whole Golden Gate Bridge is a suspension bridge. The entire bridge is hung from two great towers embedded in the, bed, in the bedrock. And the entire bridge hangs from those two great pillars. And likewise, the entire moral law, the law and the prophets, hang from the two great commandments. Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. From these two pillars of the moral law hang the Ten Commandments. Then we began to zero in on the moral law, looking at what is the proper use of the moral law and the unlawful use of the law. In his letter of 1 Timothy, Paul taught that the law is good, but that it can be used, and that it can be used in a good and proper way, or it can be used in an unlawful way. I'll read, first of all, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. We covered this before. Paul wrote, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Reformed theology teaches that there are three lawful uses of the law. And in the last study, we looked at the first use of the law, which is to show unsaved people their true state of condemnation. The moral law shuts all people up under their sin, both Jews and Gentiles. The misuse of the law is to think that we can keep the moral law perfectly and earn salvation for ourselves. Now, the first use of the law is often called the pedagogical use, with the word pedagogical just meaning it relates to teaching. The severity of the law teaches an elect sinner of his true condition and his need for grace. And now we come to the second use of the law. The second use of the law is as a restraint upon the nations to keep them from being as evil as they could possibly be. Now, this use of the law could be called the political or civil use of the law. The political or civil use of the law. The political or civil use of the law is necessary because of the depravity of man. This second use of the law, it presupposes man's sin and depravity and where that depravity would lead society if it was just left to itself. The first use of the law, it's pedagogical or teaching use is meant to bring sinners to seeing their own sins as they should. And at the time of salvation of an elect person, it drives them to embrace the gospel as the only remedy for their sin. But this second use of the law is not only for the elect. The second use of the law is instead an element of what is called common grace. Common grace. And you may have heard that term before because in previous sessions we covered common grace. Common grace is a set of benefits that God gives from his goodness to the world at large. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Rain falls on the just and on the unjust. It's because of common grace that the world continues. It's because of common grace that societies hold together and provide a continuing place where God is working his special grace of saving his people. It all hangs together through common grace. Common grace is not saving grace. God grants saving grace only to the elect. But everyone benefits to some extent from common grace. Common grace enables 
the preservation of the world until the final day of judgment and the granting of what is needed by mankind, including the restraint of sin. This second use of the law, the use of the law that restrains mankind from being as evil as they could possibly be, that's part of common grace. And this restraint, as an element of common grace, it's needed as a preservative, to preserve the world so that the gospel can be spread. Now, what would happen to society if God were to completely remove his restraining hand from sin? Let's take a look at the world and what passed for society just before the great flood. And I'll read from Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, things look pretty bad in the earth today. Evil is everywhere. With David in Psalm 7, we cry out, and I'll read from Psalm 7, verse 9, where he wrote, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. But as bad as things are, we're not to the point of Genesis 6, verse 5, where it says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Even though things are bad in the earth today, mankind is not as evil as they could possibly be. We can, only, we, we can always imagine something worse. After the flood... God covenanted with the entire earth, all of creation, to preserve creation until the final day. And I'll read next from Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, which is the wording of what we call the Noahic covenant. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So we have a covenant, the Noahic covenant. And this covenant in Genesis chapter 8 is a covenant that God made with the entire earth. Mankind and all of creation. Despite the sinfulness of man, the earth would remain until the final day of history, the day of judgment. This covenant, the Noahic covenant, is part of God's common grace. The existence of God's moral law in its second use that we're studying tonight as a restraint is part of common grace. Common grace includes the fact that we have human government instead of anarchy. And human government is there to reward good and punish evil. The restraint of the moral law acts on all of society by means of human government, but you know it also acts on individuals. 
the existence of the moral law restrains individuals from giving full expression to evil. Now, one of the passages that tells us about the second use of the law, the political use or the civil use, the restraining use, is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which is where I'll be next. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, Paul starts the letter by warning Timothy about false teachers arising in the church. And part of their false teaching came from their false understanding about the law. They wanted to be teachers of the law. But Paul comes after them with blunt words saying they, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, I'll read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now the problem with the false teachers who wanted to teach the law wasn't with the law itself. Paul says in verse 8 that the law is good, but the law has to be used lawfully or correctly. The false teachers use the law incorrectly. Now many commentators seem to say that this passage here in 1 Timothy refers, it refers more to the first use of the law where the passage encourages sinners to see themselves in all these categories of sin that we just named, and to have the law reveal their condition of being unholy and profane and in need of what the gospel announces in Christ. But John Calvin had another approach, and he linked this passage to the second use of the law that we're studying tonight. Here's what Calvin wrote about this second use of the law. He wrote, the second function of the law is this, at least by fear of punishment to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right, unless compelled by hearing the dire threats in the law. And then Calvin goes on in his explanation. The apostle, and he's referring here to, uh, to Paul writing to Timothy, the apostle seems specially to have alluded to this function of the law when he teaches that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of parents, for manslayers, fornic fornicators, perverts, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else runs counter to sound doctrine. He shows in this that the law is like a halter to check the raging and otherwise limitlessly raging lusts of the flesh. Now, I agree with Calvin on that point, where he says that this passage in 1 Timothy describes the second use of the law, the restraining use. The law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient as a check on evil that would otherwise be unrestrained. The theologian Francis Turretin compared the second use of the law to a horse's bit, holding sinners within a cage of external consequences so that the world would not become, as he put it, a den of robbers. This preserving 
of the earth is part of what we call common grace. Christians benefit from saving grace, but common grace is not saving grace. Everyone, both elect and non-elect, benefit to some extent from common grace. God preserving the earth is part of common grace. Also, God restraining mankind from being as evil as possible is also common grace. In this way, the moral law of God benefits mankind, even though most are not saved, because of this second use of the law. In the second use of the moral law, the political or civil use of the law, some degree of civil order is maintained. This doesn't mean that the unsaved love the law or the lawgiver. Instead, as John Calvin wrote, the second function of the law is to hinder the wicked who will cease to do evil only from fear. Without doubt, their heart is not touched, and they obey only by compulsion. Now, one question that comes up is, how can the moral law of God restrain the pagan nations from being as evil as possible in those cases where the pagan nations don't have the scriptures? The answer is that even if they do not have the scriptures, they still have a conscience. They still know right from wrong. And we covered this in the last study when we defined natural law. Natural law is the moral law of God as it's written on the consciences of people, even though they may not have the written law. And to show that there is such a thing as natural law, we went to Romans chapter 2, and I'll read that next. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. And I'll read it just as a reminder. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This passage shows that the Gentiles who did not have the scriptures, along with the Jews who did have the scriptures, are all shut up under the condemnation of the moral law of God. No one has an excuse before God's moral law. A pagan can't plead before the judgment throne on the last day, hey, I had no idea there was even such a thing as a moral law. His own conscience tells him otherwise. So the moral law of God, whether a person reads the scripture or has no access to the scripture, to some degree, the law is a restraint. It's not a complete restraint. People still commit great amounts of evil and great degrees of evil, but many people are still what I would call nice people, and they do things that benefit others. God's common grace that works through the second use of the law, the civil use, is, to some degree, a restraint. But you know, when we look at the reaction of nations to the second use of the law, the civil use, we see that the unsaved do not act logically. There are contradictions to how nations and individuals react. This is because there is what we might call a moral insanity to sin. A moral insanity to sin. Sin drives mankind to a moral insanity that only the new birth can rescue us from.
we can look at two contradictions to how the unsaved react to the second use of the law. The first contradiction is that mankind rebels against the second use of the law. They rebel against the common grace of God in restraining sin. The unsaved don't see the second use of the law as being gracious, as being an element of common grace. Instead, the unsaved, including me, before I was saved, saw the moral law as being like handcuffs. And the role of the unsaved is to chafe against the handcuffs, to rebel against the handcuffs, to try to cut off the handcuffs and escape. On one hand, the second use of the law gives people a fear of judgment after death and restrains through fear. But on the other hand, the unsaved hate the moral law, hate the lawgiver, hate righteousness, love their evil deeds, and try to escape the second use of the law. You know, one passage that shows the contempt that the nations have for God and his moral laws in Psalm 2, and that's where I'll be next, in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm that pulls back the curtain for us and gives us a view behind the scenes of the visible world. It shows us who actually rules over the nations. Psalm 2 shows us that what is happening in the world around us is only the visible portion of a spiritual battle, like the visible part of an iceberg. It's only a small part of the iceberg. This psalm reveals to us the larger part of how authority works. The authority of the nations and the greater authority of Christ, who rules over the nations. And I'll read from Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth are here portrayed as taking their seats to take counsel together on how to rebel against the Lord and his anointed, who is Christ. Their rebellion is summarized in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The great lie of the devil is to cause the nations to look at the freedom from sin's dominion that Christ brings as instead being chains, fetters, ropes, handcuffs. Psalm 2 tells us of the second use of God's moral law, the civil use, the use that restrains the evil of the nations. The mob of the general population, they're all clamoring to overthrow the second use of the law. Then the rulers, they take their seats to carry out this overthrow. The psalm goes on to reveal their rebellious plot is in vain. Verse 1 tells us that the nations are raging and the peoples are plotting against the second use of the law. But that verse also tells us that it's all in vain. The psalm goes on to rebuke and warn the nations and to reveal that the Son of God is ruler of the nations. That is the first contradiction of the reaction of people to the second use of the law. Second use is an element of common grace, but the nations and individuals don't see it that way. And they seek to escape the moral law. Now we get to the second contradiction. The second contradiction 
is that the effect of the moral law on the unsaved is that it actually stirs up greater sin. Next, I'll be in Romans chapter 7, where it speaks to us of this effect of the moral law in actually stirring up sin. I'll read from Romans 7, verses 5 to 10. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In fact, there is an effect of the moral law on the unsaved where the law actually stirs up greater sin. So we have several effects of the second use of the law on the unsaved nations. There is restraint where the nations are not as evil as they could possibly be because of the fear of judgment. But there is also rebellion against that moral law and the lawgiver. Then there is also the effect of the moral law in stirring up greater sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 5, which we just read, tells us, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law, before we are born again, has a tendency to arouse our sins. The law stirs up a desire to disobey simply out of rebellion to God himself. The moral law of God represents God's moral decree. And in our state before the new birth, we were in a state of rebellion. And this rebellion exhibited itself in our rebellion against God's moral decree. The fact that the law in the unsaved actually arouses sin is something we can see in the book of Proverbs chapter 9. Now in this chapter, both Lady Wisdom and the woman of folly are announcing that the people of the city should come to their houses. Come here, come here. Lady wisdom and the woman of folly, they're anthropomorphisms. In other words, a figure of speech that makes a point by looking at something as though it were a person. A person who turns toward the house of lady wisdom has great reward. But the call of lady wisdom is competing with the call of the woman of folly. As we come the Proverbs chapter 9, verses 17 to 18, we see part of the temptation of the woman of folly. Woman of folly says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. The temptation of the woman of folly is that sin is pleasant simply because it is sin. 
The fact that the water is stolen makes it sweeter to the sinner. The fact that the bread is eaten in secret because it too is stolen and forbidden makes it more pleasant to the sinner. For the sinner, the moral law itself is an incitement to sin. It stirs up further sin. Another example of how the moral law of God actually stirs up sin in the unsaved comes from the experience of Augustine. Augustine was a great theologian of the fourth century. And one of his works was a book called The Confessions. And in this work, Augustine looked back on how God had led him in grace from his disordered youth. One of the sins that Augustine remembers in his confessions is tie, it ties into this ability of the law to stir up sin. Augustine recounted when he was 16 years old. He would steal pears from an orchard that didn't belong to him just because it was against the moral law. And here's a quote from Augustine's Confessions. Those pears were truly pleasant to the sight, but it was not for them that my miserable soul lusted. For I had an abundance of better pears. I stole these simply that I might steal. For having stolen them, I threw them away. My sole gratification in them was my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. For if any one of these pears entered my mouth, the only good flavor it had was my sin in eating it. If this seems like the unsaved in their sin are suffering from a kind of insanity, I think that is true. Spurgeon said that men being bound by their sins is a mystery. When he said, oh, that they were wise, for then they might be awakened out of this folly. But this still remains the mystery of mysteries, that those sins absurd and deadly bind men as with cords and hold them fast like a bull in a net. Sin is a mystery, a kind of moral insanity. We looked at how the second use of the moral law, the civil use of the law, applies to unbelievers. It applies to unbelievers because this aspect of common grace is needed so that the world does not descend into ever greater and unrestrained evil. But does this second use of the law apply to Christians? The answer is no in the most important sense, but yes in a secondary sense. Now the second use of the law is no longer in force in its primary sense for those who are Christians. Christians are no longer under the reign of sin, where sin has control over us like a slave master, and we need the law to restrain us like animals. But in a secondary sense, Christians still benefit from the second use of the law. We can look at the serious nature of the law in those moments of temptation, and think a second time about whether we want to go down the path of temptation. But in the most important purpose of the second use of the law, it pertains to the unbelieving nations and unbelieving individuals who require restraint against their will. To show this contrast between how Christians relate to the law versus unbelievers, I'll read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Now, this passage shows the contrast in how the second use of the law has a restraining effect on unbelievers compared with how Christians relate to the law. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now this passage says something about both believers and non-Christians. John describes Christians as those who know God's love and believe the gospel. Because we know God's love, we fully rely on and trust in that love. We believe God's love because we believe and testify that the Father sent the Son into the world because he loved us. And then John further describes Christians as those who abide in love, abide in God, and God abides in them. Now the contrast becomes apparent. Verse 17 says that for Christians, we have confidence for the day of judgment. We have confidence for the day of judgment. And verse 18 expands on that confidence. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why is this? Because fear has to do with punishment. The Greek word here translated punishment is used in only one other place in the New Testament. In Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus is describing the final judgment. And he says there, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We can see the contrast between 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. This is the contrast between Christians and unbelievers regarding how we approach the final day of judgment. It's the contrast between confidence in Christ and the fear having to do with the punishment of the final judgment. The unsaved, who are still under the first and second uses of the law, are under the accusation of the law and the condemnation of the law because of the first use of the law. Remember, that was the first use of the law, to shut everyone up under condemnation, to show us our sin, to drive us to the gospel. The unsaved, they're still under the first and second uses of the law. They're under the accusation of the law. They're under the condemnation of the law. They're also under the restraint of the law, a restraint that they rebel against because of the second use of the law. And because of the teaching purpose of the law and the restraining purpose of the law, there is a fear of death because of fear of the final judgment and a fear of punishment. In fact, there's a double punishment. There's a present punishment while they still live because of fear of coming punishment. Then, later on, there's the actual eternal punishment when the final day finally comes. Fear has to do with punishment. Unbelievers have this fear now because they inherently know that judgment is coming. But for Christians, we can relate to 1 John 4, 18, where it says there is no fear in love because fear has to do with punishment. 
Because Christians have been saved, we can face death and the final judgment with confidence. That confidence comes from the work of our champion and savior, Christ. What this means is that for the Christian, we are no longer under the first and second uses of the law. For an elect person, at the time when God is applying salvation to them, the first use of the law causes them to see their sin, take refuge in the gospel, and be saved. Once we are saved, we now desire to follow the moral law as fruit and evidence of salvation out of gratitude. The second use of the law as a restraint is necessary for the nations, but no longer necessary to restrain the Christian. The first and second uses of the law are primarily for unbelievers. We've seen from the previous study that the law cannot save. God's word has two messages, law and gospel. The law is not good news for the unbeliever. The moral law is like a mirror that reflects the sin of man, showing him his true condition of depravity. It shows him that he cannot save himself. Man still has a conscience, and other religions teach that we should just uh, listen to Jiminy Cricket, let our conscience be our guide. Everything will be all right in the end. Everything will be okay at the final judgment. But what we should learn from the moral law in our conscience is that we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. The law cannot save. Instead, the law condemns us. The first message of God's word is law. But there's another message from God's word, and that word is gospel, the good news. The law is bad news for sinners, but the gospel is good news. In a previous study, I quoted Luther on the law and the gospel, and I'll quote it again as a reminder. When the law drives you to the point of despair, let it drive you a little farther. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus, who says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The theologian Philip Melanchthon wrote, the law shows the disease, the gospel, the cure. The law shows the disease, the gospel, the cure. The moral law of God in its first use is meant to drive us to despair. The law is not a message that can save the unsaved. The law cannot justify. But at the time when the Lord saves an elect person, he shows us our true condition with the law, then calls us with the gospel. In the outward call of the gospel and then the inward call from the Holy Spirit, we are born again and come to saving faith and repentance unto life. Hebrews chapter 7, which is where I'll be next, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 tell us of this contrast between the law and the gospel. If we look to personal law-keeping to save us, we find that the law is unable to save us. But this passage in Hebrews has good news. I'll read from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
Why is the law weak and useless? Well, the reason why the law is weak and useless to save a sinner is because the law made nothing perfect. But verse 19 goes on with good news. The gospel is a better hope, and it is through the gospel that we draw near to God. So the next question is, does this make the moral law of God a bad thing? Is the law somehow defective? If the law cannot justify us, and as unbelievers it condemns us, does this mean this is because the moral law of God is somehow faulty? The answer is no. The moral law of God is in no way faulty. I'm going to read next from Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. And it tells us that the law is the very opposite of faulty. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The poetry of the psalm assures us that the law is perfect, sure, right, and pure. Next, we can turn to Romans chapter 7, which where I'll be next. Here, Paul assures us that the problem we have with the moral law is not the law itself. The problem is us. The problem is ourselves. I'll read from Romans chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The moral law of God is described by Paul in verse 12 in threefold praise. The moral law is holy, righteous, and good. Threefold praise, holy, righteous, and good. This threefold description shows the source of the moral law, which is God's moral nature. God himself is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not with the law itself. The problem is with us. The law, which is holy, righteous, and good, is a mirror that shows us our sin. The law, in its first use, shows sin in us to be sin. The holy, righteous, and good law of God discloses our sin and condemnation. The other problem is also not a problem of the law, but a, the problem when we misuse the law, when we misuse the law. Luther wrote of the misuse of the law in this way. The law is not to be evaded, but without the theology of the cross, a person misuses the best things in the worst way. Misuses the best things in the worst way. When false religions claim that we can earn our justification by law-keeping, this is misusing the best thing in the worst way. Another passage that reinforces this truth, that the problem with the moral law is not the moral law itself, 
but the problem is us, is in Romans chapter 8. And I'll read verses 1 to 4. Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In this passage, Paul had already taught what the law did in the law's first use. In its first use, the moral law condemned us. But verse 1 has the best possible news, the news of the gospel. Because we believe we are free from the law of sin and death, the demand of the moral law, it set in motion a principle that we were under before we believed. That principle was what verse 2 calls the law of sin and death. The terms of the law are do this and live. What's the other side of that coin? What's the other side of that demand? It's do or die. The law of sin and death. The principle unleashed in us by the law before salvation. That's the bad news. This is what the first use of the law made clear. The good news is in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This combination of words, therefore, now, no condemnation, it's emphatic. It's an emphatic combination of words. For those in Christ Jesus, condemnation is not ever a possibility from that time forward. But now we get to verse 3 to make a point about how the principle of sin and death is not the fault of the law itself. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The problem is not the perfect moral law itself. The problem is the weakness of the flesh. The blame was on our sinful human nature. So this is the answer to the question we asked. The law in its first use drives us to despair and drives us to Christ. The question was, does this make the moral law of God a bad thing? Absolutely not. The law is perfect, sure, right, pure, holy, righteous, and good. The problem is sinful human nature. That is why it is Christ who saves, and not by any attempt by us to earn salvation by law-keeping. So we've covered two lawful uses of the moral law of God. False religions try to use the moral law of God in an unlawful manner. They try to gain justification by law-keeping. But what we read in Romans chapter 8 says that the law cannot justify us because it is weakened by the flesh, our sinful nature. Using the moral law to earn salvation is the unlawful use of the law. But the law itself is actually good. This should remind us of what we covered before, 1 Timothy 1.8, where we saw, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The moral law of God is absolutely good. But in 1 Timothy it says we must not misuse the law by using it unlawfully. 
Now, so far, we've covered two lawful uses of the moral law. The first use is to show mankind his sin and his need for a savior. The second use is as a restraint to keep mankind from becoming even more evil than they are now. The nations have a responsibility to uphold general justice. You know, governments are far from perfect, but this is their responsibility under God according to the second use of the moral law. For Christians, the first use and second use of the law have already served their primary purpose. We still benefit from those uses in a secondary sense because we still need to be reminded of the serious nature of sin and our need for ongoing repentance. But these uses for Christians in their primary sense, they already serve their purpose. Does this mean now that Christians have nothing to do with the moral law of God? Now you might think the answer to be obvious, but there are teachers out there who claim that the moral law of God is no use to the Christian, believe it or not. But there is a lawful use of the moral law for Christians. And that is what we're going to get to in the third use of the law. The third use of the law is as a guide for how the Christian should now live as fruit and evidence of salvation and in gratitude to God for salvation. And that third use of the law, we're going to get to that next time. Thank you for coming tonight.